0: And this evening, as you know, we're starting our study of the prophecy of uh, Joel. So you can go ahead and turn there with me. Uh, Joel, of course, is one of the minor prophets. And they are called... The minor prophets not so much, of course, because their words are somehow less significant than those of the major prophets like Isaiah, Jeremiah... Ezekiel, but strictly because uh, their books, their prophecies, are much shorter than those of the major prophets. But all of the writing prophets, whether major or minor, they had essentially the same calling as prophets. They exposed the ways in which Israel had broken the covenant that it had made with God through Moses. They proclaimed the nation's impending doom. And not just that of Israel, of course, but of all the nations. All of the nations that opposed the Lord. They were condemned by the prophets. So the prophets were preachers of repentance. They were preachers of a judgment to come. And they also looked forward uh, eagerly to a day of renewal, spiritual restoration. They took comfort in the fact that God was going to write every wrong one day and that what they had been denied in the present they were going to get in the future now joel specifically here he puts it all of this in terms of a coming day of the lord the day of the lord he actually uses that expression day of the lord uh, or something to that effect about nine times in this short book. And he does that uh, because of the speci- specific circumstances uh, which he himself had experienced and the circumstances that the people of Judah had experienced during this time. Uh, during this day, uh, you'll see, and we'll go over this, during the days of Joel, uh, the Lord has sent a plague to the promised land. And, and Joel himself, he takes that as a foreshadowing, a foretaste of a coming day of vengeance when God would conquer His enemies and establish His reign on the earth. He sees uh, this as the uh, kind of a harbinger or even a beginning of a complex of events that culminates in the destruction of the wicked and the outpouring of blessing upon the righteous. And Joel, again, he uses this coming day of the Lord... To get a very simple lesson across. Throughout the book, he's got one lesson that he's trying to drive to. And that is that every nation is accountable to God. God is going to judge all peoples. But if they repent, they will find... God to be a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and relenting of evil. That is what he says in chapter 2, verse 13. That's the thrust of the book of Joel. And if you think about it, that makes this prophecy right here very relevant to us because we ourselves are living in the midst of a society that is witnessing all sorts of plagues. Judgment is everywhere you look. You can see it on the one hand, even uh, from an economic standpoint. Uh, Until the year 2000, Europe and America uh, actually produced over half of the gross world product, peaking at about 66% in 1960. But by 2015, that number had fallen to 37%. So you might say that our financial relevance compared to other countries in the world fell almost by half. And on the other hand, the U.S. uh, makes up roughly 52% of of the gross world government debt. So we're not only making less money, but we're also the most indebted nation in the world. So you might say we are... Right now, in an economic freefall, we're witnessing the ravaging of an economy. But worse than that, death itself has become uh, the order of the day. It's spread, it spread around like a plague in our society. Between 1950 and 2020, the West executed one-third to one-half of the world's population by abortion. Some two to four billion Babies And uh, between 1994 and 2019, 10, st- ten states adopter, adopted a doctor-assisted suicide uh, laws, which makes sense, of course, uh, given that the children are being murdered, so why not also kill the elderly? Uh, beyond that, uh, between 2000 and 2020, the rate of drug overdose death Uh, that went up 400%, 400% in 20 years. And the suicide rate increased 38% in the last 20 years. And with the widespread acceptance of sodomy and transgenderism, you are putting an end to reproduction. This is a society that has lost the will to live. I mean, even between uh, 1950 and 2020 alone... The, world, the world's fertility rate dropped for, from 4.6 to 2.4. So we have half the same amount of children being born. It's a death plague that we are witnessing. And, and of course, we could go on and on and on and on about the different plagues that we are witnessing now. Uh, for example, uh, we would consider uh, the, the, the fact that our society expects... Women to lead, and uh, there has been a a reversal of the gender roles, and that is extremely destructive to a society. And so we're we're getting a taste of in our own day. We're getting a taste of the coming day of the Lord. And this prophecy helps us. It calibrates our mind to think in those terms. It helps us to think of the tragedies that we are seeing around us, the judgments that we are seeing around around us, it helps us to think biblically of those. Now, tonight, I actually just want to focus on the opening seven verses of the book. And in these verses, Joel writes to us about the nature of his prophecy or of his message. And then he begins to describe the plague that he and the citizens of Judah were witnessing. So he talks about the the tragedy that he himself saw in his day. So I want to go over these two things this evening with you, the prophecy and the plague. So let's go ahead and read verses 1 through 7. The word of the Lord says here, in verse 1, The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Hear this, O elders, and listen, listen, all inhabitants of the land. Has anything like this happened in your days or in your father's days? Tell your sons about it and let your sons tell their sons and their sons the next generation. What the gnawing locust has left, the swarming locust has eaten. And what the swarming locust has left, the creeping locust has eaten. And what the creeping locust has left, the stripping locust has eaten. Awake drunkards and, and weep And well, all you wine drinkers, on account of the sweet wine that is cut off from your mouth. For a nation has invaded my land, mighty and without number, and its teeth are the teeth of a lion, and it has fangs of a lioness. It has made my vine a waste, and my fig tree splinters. It has stripped them bare and cast them away. Their branches have become white. Now notice, uh, the prophecy here, it, it opens with a statement about itself. In verses uh, 1 to 3, the writer speaks of the nature of this prophecy. He describes the message here, the book here, as heavenly, as significant, and as relevant. He says it is heavenly, it is significant, or or serious, or meaningful, and he, is, he says that it is relevant. He says that the Book, the words that you're reading here, the book that you're reading, that it comes from God and that it is also consequential and that it is useful not only for the immediate readers but also for generations to come so everybody else that would read it. Notice that he claims immediately from the outset to be speaking for, from, for God. Joel says here at the beginning, the word of the Lord that came to Joel, the title Lord here um, is actually a personal name if you were looking at the Hebrew text, it is the sacred tetragrammaton, Yahweh or Jehovah. This was the name that God gave to the nation of Israel as His personal name. Yahweh is the unchanging one, the covenant-keeping God. And the assertion being made here is that this is His Word. He gave this. People ask, how have uh, the people of God throughout years determined uh, whether a certain writing is part of the Bible, whether it is Scripture, whether it is God breathed? How have they assessed whether something belongs truly in the Bible? And the answer to that, first and foremost, is that the writer himself claims that he is speaking for God. He asserts that what he is saying is God's message to the people. Of course, there are other requirements beyond that because we know that some do claim to be speaking for God who are actually just lying so there are other requirements but at the bottom of it all the beginning test as it were is that you have this idea that the speaker himself he is saying to have God's words on his lips that is what Joel is affirming here now was he right Was He speaking the words of God? Was His message truly heavenly? And the answer is, of course, yes. Now, one way of knowing whether it it is so, it is uh, by confirmation from yet another uh, message, another inspired writing. And there is one in the book of Acts. You might remember that during Pentecost, the Spirit rushes upon the disciples and they are heard in their own uh, l- native languages by the men who were visiting Jerusalem for the feast and to explain that in Acts 2.16 2, Peter alludes to the text in Joel in chapter 2 verses 28 through 32 where it says that the Spirit of God would pour or would, would be poured upon the sons of men. Uh, but he introduces that passage uh, from the book of Joel with the words this was uttered through the prophet Joel. In other words, the assumption that Peter makes when he quotes the book of Joel in the book of Acts is that Joel was not speaking his own word, but rather he was merely the instrument through which God spoke to His people. He says this was spoken through Joel. So the letter that we are looking at right now, the book that we are looking at, the prophecy here is from heaven you cannot ignore it you have to live by this word spiritually in the way that you live by physical food it's a divine word it was delivered by god's servant Joel that 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 name Joel uh is made up of the name Yahweh the covenant name of god and the word El in the Hebrew which means god so the the name Joel means Yahweh is God. And that suggests at the very least that he is the son of believing godly parents. And the passage actually states the name of his father here. It says that Joel was the son of Pethuel. Now to be sure, um, Scripture actually is silent about Pethuel, And uh, the Bible is relatively silent about who exactly Joel was uh, himself or where he lived and when he prophesied. The other prophetic books, they don't make mention directly of Joel himself and his life circumstances or they don't add any specific uh, details to the, the circumstances that he was dealing with. So all we have to go with is what Joel himself did say in his book. And it's clear here that he was dealing with something very weighty, with very, something very significant. This is a word full of importance. It's a weighty message. Uh, So not only is it a heavenly message, it is also a significant message. Notice verse 2. It says, Hear this, O elders, and listen, all inhabitants of the land. Has anything like this happened in your days and in your father's days? Uh, The title um, elder here, to be sure, uh, refers obviously to a man who is in authority over a people. Uh, From the beginning, the people of God They've always been ruled by elders. And of course, under the Old Covenant, the Old Dispensation, the elders actually held not, not just a, a kind of social or, or, social, or we might say uh, ecclesiastical or religious authority. They had more than that. They also had political authority. They were governors. They were local magistrates, so forth and so on. So it's not surprised that Joel begins to address them first. He says, Elders. They are the representatives of the people of God. And they also set the tone. They set the example. So he calls first and foremost for them to listen. And then he calls everybody else. He says, Hear this, O elders, and listen, all inhabitants of the land. The the verb that is translated here as to listen means pay attention or take heed. He wants the undivided attention of the inhabitants of the land. The, The word land here... Uh, has a as a has a broad semantic range. It can uh, refer from a small piece of ground to the whole world. So you have to figure out what he means when he says land. You have to figure out what he means by the context, by the way that the author is using it. And in this case, I believe that Joel was speaking specifically to those who were part of the kingdom of the south. Now, you might remember that After Solomon's reign, his son Rehoboam takes over the kingdom. And what happens with Rehoboam? The kingdom splits in two. You get the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And uh, the capital of the northern kingdom becomes Samaria. And the capital of the southern kingdom, which is also called Judah, is Jerusalem. And you can tell that... um, Joel was writing to the people in the south because on the one hand he makes no mention of Samaria or or any other northern northern city but he does mention Judah and Jerusalem several times Uh, in chapter 3 verse 1 for example uh, he says for behold in those days and at that time when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem and then in verse 6 he says, You sold the sons of Judah in Jerusalem to the Greeks. And in verse 8, he says, I will sell your sons and your daughters into the hand of the sons of Judah. So Joel, he is, uh, he is speaking here when he mentions the inhabitants of the land, he is addressing those in the southern kingdom. And he was telling them that they could not afford to ignore what he had to say. Not only was it heavenly, but it was also significant. This was monumental. Notice the question that he asks here. He asks, has anything like this happened in your days or in your father's day? So notice, he points to two distinct generations, the generation of the immediate audience and the generation of their fathers. And he asks whether in all their years... They had seen anything or they had witnessed something like what they had just witnessed. Uh, Now, Joel uh, has not really described yet at this point what it is that they have just witnessed. So we're not going to talk about that yet. We're not going to see what what plagues or we're not going to talk yet about what plague he has in mind. But the point that we that that we can make at this point is that uh, he wanted his audience to think soberly, to have a certain attitude about what he is about to say. They were living through something meaningful. They need to snap back to reality. They need to take heed to what he has to say. So again, his message is not only heavenly, but it is also significant. And that is always the case with The Word of God. It is always serious. You can actually tell the fate of a people and how they will do by whether they receive the Word as significant for themselves or not. In the antediluvian world, the contemporaries of Noah uh, took the Word and his preaching very lightly for 120 years, and they drowned. Then you uh, push forward though to the people of Nineveh who take the preaching of Jonah as significant, as a very serious word and as something that was coming from God Himself and they humbled themselves, even their own king humbled himself in the dust uh jonah chapter 3 verses 4 through 6 says then jonah began to go through the city one day's walk and he cried out and said yet 40 days and nineveh will be overth- overthrown then the people of nineveh it says believed in god not only not just jonah but it says they believed in god even though that jonah was the one who was doing the speaking and it says that they called a fast and they put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them when the word reached the king of Nineveh he arose from his throne laid aside his r- robe from him covered himself with sackcloth and sat on ashes so again the Ninevites they took the word of Jonah very seriously they took it as coming from God himself and they humbled themselves and as a result we know that God spared that nation they actually were converted Uh, and will judge with Jesus Christ. Remember, Jesus Christ spoke of the Ninevites rising up in judgment. And that is for believers to do, to rise up in judgment. So that generation of Ninevites, they were converted. And so they have a place in the judgment seat with Christ and His people. So again, when a people esteem the Word as weighty, as significant, as meaningful then you see salvation. Now, there's another characteristic of Joel's prophecy here. So, so far we've said that it is heavenly and that it is significant. Here's a third characteristic. It is relevant. Relevant. Look at verse 3. It says, Tell your sons about it, and let your sons tell their sons and their sons to the next generation. Uh, the, The verb to tell here literally means to recount or to count something again. It's a, it's a mathematical term, but the Hebrews used that, of course, uh, for the idea of reporting something or announcing something. Now, uh, to be sure, the, the, um, the, the pronoun here, the demonstrative pronoun, it, that can refer to one of two things here. On the one hand, jo- Joel could be asking the people of Judah to tell their children about the calamity that they were witnessing, or else he could be asking them to pass down the prophecy that he was giving them itself. And I believe that he is talking about the prophecy, the word of the Lord, because the word of the Lord, as we'll see, not only recounts the, the events, the tragedy, the plague itself, but it also provides the divine interpretation for that event. You know, on the one hand, you have a fact or the data, and on the other, there is the interpretation of that Data a, a nation might be, for example, having serious problems, uh, and one thing is identifying the problems themselves, and another is interpreting the meaning of those problems in our nation, for example, you would nobody would argue that there, there isn 't there isn't any trouble right Everybody knows that something is wrong, everybody understands that something is off the atmosphere. Anybody would tell you it's filled with hatred and strife and division. There's very little peace. The country is divided. People are miserable. The economy itself is even sinking. Our influence in the world is waning. Those are the facts. But how do you interpret the facts? Who gets to make sense of those facts? And you could, on the one hand, rely on the political commentators. Or you can let the sociologists... In the liberal universities, tell you what is wrong and how to fix it. Uh, They can interpret the facts for you, or you can rely on the findings of the psychologists or whatnot. Or else, you can come to the Word of God and allow God to make sense for you, to interpret for you what it is that you are witnessing. And that is because, again, the Word of God is relevant. It is relevant. It it addresses not just one particular situation, but it has an application for every age. And Joel says that here. Again, in verse 3, he says, Tell your sons about it, and let your sons tell their sons, and their sons the next generation. Now, notice the uh, prophet mentions four generations here. Four generations. His audience, the audience of his Children, their children, and their children's children. That's four generations. And interest, interestingly enough, scripture follows the same pattern all throughout, very consistently. Psalm 78, verses 5 through 7 says, He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which He commanded our fathers, first generation, that they should teach them to their children, second generation. Uh, that the generation to come third generation might know even the children yet to be born that they may arise and tell them to their children fourth generation that they should put their confidence in God and then in the same way Paul says in 2 Timothy 2, 2 the things which you which are things which you that's second generation have heard from me first generation in the presence of many witnesses and trust these to faithful men third generation who will be able to teach others also. First or fourth generation. So you get across the scriptures this pattern of four generations. And the point of that, of course, is not to imply that after four generations it's over, it's no longer relevant, but rather the very opposite. That the scriptures are relevant one generation after the next. It is perpetually Helpful to the sons of men. By the way, this is why we are emphasizing so much the need to teach our children and to even uh, minister to the children at church effectively because this is a divine calling to impact the next generation so that they may pass on to the following generation. They are the future church and the future of the church. But again... Going back to this, uh, the 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 point here is that the word that comes from heaven is relevant not only to the people going through uh, the plague in this case, but it is also relevant to all generations. You can have an understanding of life. You can interpret life itself through the holy scriptures as they are given to you you can grasp why particular things are happening around you. Uh, Psalm 119 verse 97 says your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path and Proverbs 6:23 says the commandment is a lamp and the teaching is light and reproofs for discipline are the way of life. And 2 Peter Chapter 1, verse 19 says, So we have the prophetic word made, made more sure to which you do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. So again, the Word of God is relevant. It's, it reveals to you what is going on in the world around you. In our case, when you live in a society, for example, that has given itself over to uh, all kinds of sexual perversion and homosexuality and uh, things even like transgenderism, scripture tells you, you can understand it uh, in Romans one eighteen and on, that these are judgments on a people who refuse to give thanks to God. So he gives them over to a depraved mind, he gives them over to a sexual revolution that then turns into a homosexual revolution and then it's unleashed you what you get a is a reprobate mind things like transgenderism and even drag queen story hour those are all judgments from God on a people who refused to honor and to worship him who refused to give thanks to him so again this is we understand that because scripture explains it to us scripture is Relevant, And this letter itself also is part of Scripture. It is relevant. It is uh, heavenly. It is significant. And it is relevant. So let's look now at the plague itself that the kingdom of Judah was experiencing. So we've considered the prophecy, the nature of the prophecy of Joel, that it is heavenly and all that and from verses 1 and 3. And now we're moving on to the plague, the nature of the plague. That Judah was experiencing. And that's described here in verses 4 through 7. He uh, describes the plague itself in verse 4. He says, What the gnawing locust has left, the swarming locust has eaten. And what the swarming locust has left, the creeping locust has eaten. And what the creeping locust has left, the stripping locust has eaten. Now, uh, locusts, they are well known insects. Uh, of the grasshopper family, overall, they look like grasshoppers. they're about three inches long, although to be sure, there are many species of locusts. The Hebrew Bible actually has ten words that it uses uh, to for the, for for this particular uh, kind of animal uh, and in this passage, there are four different words that are used to refer to locusts. Uh, so Joel is listing four kinds of locusts here. You have mentioned of a gnawing, a swarming, a creeping, and a stripping locust. The, the terms themselves are somewhat obscure, so I'm not sure that we can tell which one's which or what were the, particular, the particularities of each. I think that the point here is that there are four different species of locusts, and they are attacking the land in an unrelenting way. And this would have brought, of course, unprecedented damage to the topography of, of Israel. The, the uh, locusts, they can be very damaging because they come in huge numbers. In fact, in verse 6, uh, you might notice that Joel refers to them as a nation without number. And then if you look at ver- uh, chapter 2, verse 10, he says that they darken the sun as they move forward forward before before them earthquakes the heavens tremble the sun and the moon grow dark and the stars lose their brightness uh, in fact the arabs used to call they used to refer to locusts as darkeners of the sun so they come in in, a, in massive numbers they come like a massive army and they actually leap to a height of 200 times the length of their bodies and once they are on air they spread their wings, and they fly very close together so that they look like one compact, moving mass. And they cannot guide their flights, actually. They can just spread their wings. So they just, they're just they at the mercy of the wind, divine providence. God Himself takes them. He carries them like a war machine wherever He wants to cause destruction. So it's said that actually when a swarm of locusts begins to arrive somewhere, it looks like, or it sounds like rainfall. And once they get there, it doesn't take long for them to clear every green thing in their path. They race through green places. You might remember that this was actually one of the the plagues in the book of Exodus. It says in Exodus chapter 10 verse 15, locusts covered the surface of the whole land so that the land was darkened and they ate every plant of the land and all the fruit of the trees that the hell had left thus nothing green was left on tree or plant of the field through all the land of Egypt so this these little insects they can cause tremendous destruction they can wipe out an entire place and the kingdom of Judah they had experienced something like this and Joel here even describes the destruction that they leave behind Uh, in verse 5 he says awake drunkards and weep and wail, all you wine drinkers on account of the sweet wine that is cut off from your mouth now it's interesting that the first group here that he calls out are those who are given over to the abuse of alcohol and it may be that drunkenness had at this point become a national sin uh, maybe at this point they were known for this. It's interesting, Joel never um, accuses Judah of idolatry, which was a constant problem for the prophets. Uh, there is an accusation though here of drunkenness. And I believe that the point here is not so much that everybody was enslaved to alcohol, although it could have been, but I believe that drunkenness as it were, represented the spiritual state of the nation. Uh, When you get consumed with the things of this life, Scripture compares the effect to a dulling of the senses, uh, a spiritual stupor. You're no longer living in light of the judgment to come. You're not seeking the things above anymore. And so when calamity or divine judgment comes, you are caught off guard. Listen to what Jesus said in... Luke chapter 21 verses 34 and on. He said, Be on your guard so that your hearts will not be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the worries of life. And that they will not come on you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all those who dwell on the face of the earth. But keep on the alert at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are, that are about to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. And in First uh, Thessalonians chapter five verses two to six, it says, "For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come, just like a thief in the night. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly, like labor pains upon a." woman with child, and they will not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, that the day would not or should not overtake you like a thief. But you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. So the drunken man is one who is spiritually unaware. He is in a stupor. And that is what was happening to the citizens of Judah. They even will be said to have uh, religion be sort of a strict formality. He says, "Render your hearts and not your garments." They are in a stupor, and uh, and evidently, evidently, they were living s- simply for the pleasures of this life, for spiritual. For, I'm sorry for sensual pleasures they were living for the here and now they were abusing the blessings of this life they had even become wine connoisseurs they were living in luxury Uh, but god in his mercy he was warning them to come out of that he was saying awake drunkards and weep and wail, all you wine drinkers on account of the sweet wine that that means fresh wine it was still fermented it was the the, the product of fermentation, so it would it would still get you drunk. That just means that it had been made that year. Uh, so he talks about sweet wine that is cut off from your mouth. Notice, there's a progression there: awake, weep, wail. The, the, there's a picture there of a man who's in a drunken stupor, and then he wakes up and he suddenly begin begins to realize that something's amiss and so he begins to cry from his distress and the more he realizes the the more he comes to then he begins becomes even to uh, he comes even to start wailing when he realizes how bad the situation is in this case Joel was calling the people to see that their wine had been cut off the the verb cut off here is very strong sometimes it's translated as to be exterminated or wiped out god had violently taken their fresh wine away uh, from the citizens of Judah. uh, Because again, they were abusing the comforts of this life. They had been stupefied even by material things. And God had yanked them from them. And he does that, of course, through an invasion of locusts. Verses uh, six and seven say, "For a nation has invaded my land, mighty and without number. Its teeth are the teeth of a lion, and its fangs and the fangs of a lioness. It has made my vine a waste and my fig tree splinters. It has stripped them bare and cast them away. Their branches have become white." Now here again, you get the you get a sense of how vicious these locusts could be. They they are said to have lion teeth. In fact. Um, I read that they are omnivorous, then they consume all kinds of vegetation, but if they don't find any natural food, they will even turn carnivorous and even cannibalistic. They start to eat each other. So they are very unrelenting in their hunger. And in this case, they had consumed all the vegetation of the land. They had wreaked havoc. And the prophet, again, he's calling the people to wake up and to think, to consider... What had happened? So evidently they were not thinking spiritually about this. No doubt they were hurting. They realized that this was such a massive loss. But they were not connecting the effect back to the cause. They were crying over the symptom. But they were not so much interested in finding out what the actual illness was. And perhaps it had not even occurred to them that back in um, Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 38, God had warned Israel that if they broke the covenant with Him, then locusts would come and consume their produce. Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 38 says, You shall bring out much seed to the field, but you will gather in little, for the locusts will consume it. In other words, if you depart from My covenant that I'm making with you, locusts will have your produce. So this tragedy obviously was the consequence of the covenant treachery of the people of God but they were not connecting the dots they were not making sense of it they were obviously sad about it but they did not understand the meaning of it and that shows of course that they needed a preacher to come and tell them about what it is that this meant but this shows, of course, how hard the human heart is, that you could be even under severe judgment and yet not make the connection between effect and the cause. Proverbs 4.19 says, The way of the wicked is like darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. In other words, they don't even understand where their grief is coming from. They know they're suffering, but they don't see the root cause of it, unless of course God brings His Word to them, unless the Spirit of God causes them to hear the Word of God. God has to send His Word and He has to show the sinner what the problem is. And once the sinner sees the problem, then he can also receive the solution, which of course is the Word of God incarnate, it is always Jesus Christ. The one who fulfills the covenant on our behalf he is the way the truth and the light he is or and or the life he is the light and if you are in him if you've trusted in his precious blood to save you from the wrath of God then you can make sense not only of the things in your own life that might cause you grief but even over the judgments that you are seeing around, or even over the sufferings that you are seeing around you. So you know how to live in this present evil age. And you are not in darkness, as, it, as, uh, as Jesus Himself said, that the day of the Lord would overtake you by surprise. But rather, you are a son of the light, and you understand that... God is judging and God will continue to judge until the, day, the great day of the Lord when He finally fulfills all His promises. And after that comes the spiritual restoration that the prophets themselves longed for. And hopefully as we'll, we move forward through this book, we'll talk more about that.